1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and, God, and knows God. Whoever does not Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So I rem- my friend Mike, he uh, was in the midst of a really particularly hectic season in his life. He had left an established firm to start his own business, and so he'd been hustling the way that you really have to if you want to get uh, your own startup off the ground. And he'd just been waiting for the weekend on this one particular week, envisioning a Friday night uh, like light at the end of the tunnel. And that's when he was asked to serve on that very Friday night at a hospital for the severely mentally ill. Now, that was the very last thing that he wanted to do, and it was coming at the worst time possible, but he had also recently made a commitment to say yes to any opportunity for service to others that had been presented to him. So backed into a corner of his own commitments, he reluctantly said yes. And I was having coffee with him on the following Monday morning, and he said, you know, all I wanted to do was be out to some fancy dinner with my family and and a few friends. I wanted to treat myself because I had earned it. But then I found myself sitting over this mush uh, on a cafeteria tray, trying to interact with a man who could not even communicate with me without the help of a nurse. And the crazy thing is, is that I sat there, as I sat there, eating this preservative-filled slop in a fluorescent-lit cafeteria on a Friday night, trying to relate just to be present with this man. There was nowhere in the world that I would rather be. It was the best Friday night I've had in a long time. Somehow, it rested and refilled my soul far more than the best night out ever could have. So don't you have your own versions of that experience? Have you made that same observation that selfless love is really, really difficult to conjure up, but it is so rewarding in the end? I would guess that most of you have discovered something like that a time or two in your life. But when those little epiphanies of selfless love become ordinary, when they're not fantastic moments, but they're just ordinary moments, they're access points that we regularly revisit to life and life to the full, it is then that the vices of this world are numbed and lose their grip on us, and we begin to live in this world by the beat of another kingdom. Uh, There comes a point when the love of God is most profoundly accessed when it is shared. And that's the big idea for today, that there comes a point in the spiritual journey when the love of God is most profoundly received by giving that very love away. 
So we're currently in this teaching series in practice titled The True and False Self. It is one story being told in three parts. Part one is knowing love. We talked about moving from believing to knowing. We talked about knowing the love of God as he really is and then about knowing myself, my true self. And then we took a turn into part two, which was all about knowing fear. And we talked about the false self, about the father of lies, and then last week about the work of healing. And today marks the beginning of part three, becoming love, living as the true self in this contested world. That's where we'll be in the next few weeks. And I've just got to be fully honest with you. I spent the last week uh, traveling in the UK. I was eight hours different from this. I'm still a little bit foggy and not entirely on this time zone. My wife happens to be a birth doula who was called in at 4 a.m. this morning. So I am single dad of three kids, jet lagged, slightly unprepared, (laughs) offering you a teaching. So I'm going to keep my eye on this little secret clock that's in the back of the room, and I'm going to give you everything I can from this passage till we get to a certain number, and that's when we're suddenly going to land. Sound good? (laughs) All right. 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So the biblical concept of love is active. Compassion is the biblical word for this active expression of love. And if we're going to understand everything that follows in this passage, we first have to name the fact that we live in a culture that has replaced compassion, which is active love, which, with sentiment, which is passive love, or love that is never acted upon. Sentiment is the seed of compassion that could grow into something but never does. Sentiment is being more emotionally invested in the fictional characters of This Is Us than you are with the real-life characters that you share an office space with. It is weeping at the conditions of malnourished children during the closing credits of a particularly moving documentary, but then never lifting a finger to do anything about their condition. It's a news report that wakes you up to the victims of poverty or injustice and then turning that news report into dinner conversation with people that are equally well-off and comfortable and nothing more. It's a post on social media or a sign in your front yard about anti-racism without actually building a relationship with anyone who is ethnically and or socioeconomically different than you. It's being moved deeply by a sermon uh, about God's heart for the poor or the lost, but never acting upon that sermon uh, by volunteering at a women's shelter or asking that friend out for coffee. See, we live in a sentimental culture, inwardly moved, but outwardly stagnant. We feel love often. We become love, though, rarely. Jesus, on the other hand, lived with no gap between the internal movement of his heart and the outward movement of his hands and feet. Every single time the four Gospels mentioned that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit, they go on to immediately describe an active expression of that deep moving, the feeding of the 5,000. He goes and intercedes with the Father, physical or inner healing for another, deliverance for the oppressed. The Good Samaritan, which is potentially Jesus' most well-known parable, is a story about sentiment versus compassion. There is passive love unacted upon in a Levite and a priest, and then there is active love through compassion seen in the Samaritan. Just a chapter prior to our teaching text in 1 John 3, we read, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You see, it seems to me that both Jesus implicitly and John more explicitly are saying that real love is active. It's a seed of sentiment that is felt internally that grows and blooms into compassion that is expressed externally. Sentiment is abstract. It's conceptual. Love, though, is never abstract. It is concrete and relational by nature. Love is an extremely difficult word to define, but it's a word that we all know and interact with regularly. If you asked me to, to write a definition of the word love to go into the dictionary, I would have a really hard time coming up with a phrase to describe it. But if you asked me to tell you about love, I would go on and on and on. But that love that I tell you about, it would have names attached to it, right? I would describe it through, through real people, through, through names like Kirsten and Amos and Gavin and Gerald and Morgan. See, love is the most relational, concrete word that we have in the English language. You almost can't even talk about it without talking about other people. Eugene Peterson says, love is the most context-specific act in the entire spectrum of human behavior. There is no other single human act more dependent on and immersed in immediate context. Love is never abstract. And we strip love of all of its power when we make it so. We diminish something as potent as love into something as diluted as sentiment. And sentiment is more than just lost potential. Sentiment that does not grow into compassion within us actually damages us. It's like a piece of fruit, right? That, that if you bite into it, it will burst with flavor in your mouth with this like sweet flavor and then it will like nourish your body and be converted into energy but if you take that same piece of fruit and just leave it sitting on your kitchen counter over time it will rot and it will get mushy it'll begin to smell it'll get swarmed by flies it will stink up the whole house something with the potential to to grow in you to be something good to you unacted upon becomes something damaging something that rots something painful and, and that is what love or sentiment is. Sentiment is a seed planted in the human soul. It's a seed that's meant to grow and bloom outwardly in compassion. But when that sentiment is not acted upon, it rots within us. And what had the potential to make us more then makes us less. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. When God revealed himself to Moses, he, he gave a name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Later, David observed that when God named himself that, it was more than just talk, but he backed it up with his action. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Apostle John then summed that whole long name up really concisely. God is love. This is the character quality that is singled out on the pages of Scripture as the one-word summary of God's identity, love. And that means something profound for the aim of our lives. Because if God is first and foremost power, then authority and influence over others is how I become godly. Or if God is first and foremost knowledge or omniscience, then that means that to gain knowledge and wisdom is to become like God. 
Or if God is first and foremost untouchable and invulnerable, then to withstand and to grow impenetrable is the recipe for godliness. But because God is love, compassion is the pathway to know and become like God. Jesus says something similar to this when he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about enemy love and says this is what makes us like God when we actively love, especially when we actively love those who we've got plenty of reason uh, to just avoid or write off altogether. And then he closes that teaching with this statement, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Seems unreasonable, doesn't it? Like an unreachable standard? And that's because our uh, English word perfect is about flawlessness. We associate perfection with flawlessness in the English language. But in the Hebrew language, the word perfection is associated with compassion. And that's why Luke's gospel, when translating the exact teaching, translates this very phrase this way. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. You see, compassion is the way to both know and become like God. Does that reality direct the aim of your life? Maybe a better way to ask the question is this. What for you constitutes a well-lived day? Like when you arrive home in the evening, what affects your mood positively or negatively? What makes you say, today was a good day? Or what, what makes you anxious or agitated or distracted? I mean, for you, is it productivity? Is the seamless execution of your agenda and marking off an above average number of to-dos, is that what makes today a good day? Or could it be approval, like the, the way that you seem to be thought of by your boss or your colleagues or your child's teacher or that other parent at the playground? Or maybe comfort, maybe it's the unhindered nature of my inner equilibrium. No one messed with my inner feelings today, so it was a good day. Or is it love, the compassion I gave away freely today, the way I was present and really listened to him or her today, the way I saw today, is it love? What's your standard of value when the day's done and you're tired and, and all that you've done can't really be undone? What for you constitutes a well-lived day and does your definition match your makers? You see, the aim of discipleship to Jesus, or to put it more broadly, the meaning of life is to become love. And it's our actions and reactions that reveal our transformation. It is not necessarily the songs that we sing on Sundays. It is the way we react react when we're agitated. The the way that we bear with one another or don't. It is the, the little unseen moments that reveal the state of our transformation. The barometer of your own experience of God's love is the love you freely offer to others in the unexpected day-to-day ordinary moments. We don't only receive love, we become love. Brennan Manning said, if I'm not in touch with my own belovedness, then I cannot touch the sacredness in others. But of course, the inverse of that statement is equally true, that, that to be in touch with my own belovedness is to be freed to see, draw out, and affirm the sacredness in others. The the biblical view of identity, it is uh, the highest that you will find in any religion, philosophy, or worldview. Genesis, at the close of creation, uses this word to describe human beings set apart from every other aspect of creation in our image. 
Let us create them in our own image. That is a statement about you and me and every other person on the face of the earth. Every person, your spouse, your children, your coworker, your neighbor, the stranger you passed by on your way here this morning, the person sitting next to you right now, sacred. Every person, the Syrian refugee, the Ukrainian orphan, the victims of the Buffalo shootings, the grieving parents of the little children who lost their lives in Uvalde, Texas, the people whose political opinions infuriate you in the fallout of events like that, and even the perpetrators who victimized the grieving, sacred. Every person, the, the successful Portland working professional, the barista who's making your cappuccino, the, the houseless man living in a car parked across the street from your home and the incarcerated who woke up behind bars today awaiting release and the foster child awaiting or maybe dreading yet another placement sacred. C.S. Lewis says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals with whom we, jo- or whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. In other words, every last one of us, every last one of them in our likeness, in our image. The great deception of the enemy is to trick us into the belief that we have to earn what was breathed into us at first. And the great mission of God is to recover that beloved identity that was breathed into you and me at first. It's to to give back to us freely what was given us freely before we had the chance to earn it or to lose it. And as we, by the grace of Jesus, rediscover our own belovedness, we are then empowered as his witnesses to draw out the sanctity that we now recognize in others all around us. The ministry of Jesus did not begin with preaching or miracles or a cross and a tomb. It began with receiving love. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus does nothing until the Father calls him in the most public way possible, beloved. And from there, he then goes around the world giving out that same tenacious, relentless, defiant, faithful kind of love to anyone and everyone who will receive it. Eugene Peterson sums it up like this. The story of Jesus is the story of a beloved who became a lover. Now you do it. Love your brother. Love your sister. Love your neighbor. It's that simple. There comes a point in our discipleship to Jesus where the primary experience of God's love, the place of encounter, the place of knowing, the place of yada, is not first and foremost in the peace of meditation or reflection, but in the messy chaos of the other people around us that we are then empowered to love. Robert Mulholland says the place where we live out our relationship of loving union with God is not in the quiet of our prayer closet, though of course that matters, but in our relationships with one another. Here is where we put to death the manipulative, coercive, controlling dynamics of the false self. Here is where we abandon the dehumanizing and abusive dynamics of the false self. We love others. In other words, common love is the pathway to the freedom of the true self. And there are two groups that are singled out biblically, two groups of people that we all interact with that we are called to actively, compassionately 
love. And they are siblings and strangers. So we're going to focus in on each of them as we move ahead. First, love your siblings, meaning your brothers and sisters. Now, when I say that I'm talking about the people within your community, I am talking to you about the people seated at your right and left right now. And in the letter of 1 John, not too far back from our teaching text, we read, Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. Now, the English translation here kind of disguises it, but there's a sharp turn in the letter of 1 John with the passage that I just read, because here John slips into the first person in ancient Greek. To this point in the letter, he's been speaking generally. He's been addressing a group, like I'm addressing addressing a group right now, but with this phrase, he then turns from general to personal, speaking directly to people that he knows. That's why he writes, beloved, to open this paragraph. He's saying, beloved, I'm not talking distant theory anymore. I'm done with the teaching portion. Beloved, look at me. Love one another. That's what's just happened. And and he says, a new command I give you. A new command. Where did he get that? Where did he get the idea of a new command? Well, in addition to later writing letters like these to the early church, John also authored a gospel, meaning a biography of the life of Jesus. And the the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're known as the synoptic Gospels, meaning they are comparable records of Jesus' life, and they were all pieced together around the same time. But John is different. John wrote later. Scholars estimate that he wrote about 60 or 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. At this point, he's an old man. He's the last living of the twelve. And that's important because it means that when John sat down to write his gospel, he was already familiar with the other three that were circulating. And those other three gospels, they all can be understood kind of like uh, eyewitness news reports written from different perspectives. But John's gospel is a bit more like a thoughtful op-ed piece, like written after a little bit of time to ruminate on these events and what they might mean in the world. Uh, They emphasize what might be missing in the church just based on the other three. Because John's also writing with the benefit of seeing a community founded on Jesus' teachings while these other three uh, records of Jesus' life have been circulating through them. And that's why in John chapter 13, when John writes about the Last Supper, about the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the cup, about Jesus' famous last meal, that we are meant to remember uh, him every time we practice, it's no surprise that John, instead of emphasizing the elements of the bread and wine as the other three do, emphasizes the other two elements Jesus picked up at the same dinner, a water basin and a towel. This is John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, it's the ultimate picture of compassion here. Active love. Jesus loves his disciples in a way that they are completely unworthy of. That very night, shortly after this meal, every last one of them is going to scatter in his moment of great need. One of them has already left the table to sell his life for a handful of shekels. Jesus has given his whole self to community, and that community is now breaking his heart. You know that experience? 
You ever let your guard down? Let yourself be known completely? Love and love hard and then be disappointed? Abandoned? Betrayed? Hurt? So what do I do with that, Jesus? Wash their feet. Here, watch me. I'll go first. How? I mean, where do I find that kind of love? Where do I just conjure up the love that won't quit? The sort of love that can absorb the cost of the actions of others and then return good where I've been wronged, right here. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He took off his outer clothing. You see, to love like Jesus involves undressing taking off the false self or the old self in the language of Paul. See, when we strip away the false self, we also make room for compassion. And these two acts, they are interdependent acts. If we're going to pick up the towel to love the other through service, we first have to strip off the false self, the presentable self, the way that I want to be perceived by others, the right that I have to remain, uh, I guess, to control my perception before others the way that I want to. It's our belovedness that allows us to see and draw out even now in spite of everything the sacredness in others. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In other words, Jesus knew his true self. He knew himself in the gaze of God, and because of that, he was able to take off his outer clothing and pick up a towel. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. So uh, how do we love our siblings according to Jesus? By the way of the towel. Do you want to strip off your false self? Do you want to know the freedom of the identity that was given to you at first? Do you want uh, the love of God to be more than just a meditative reflection or a euphoric moment of worship every once in a while, but to be the emotional floor that you live from? Then wash each other's feet. Jesus concludes that meal this way, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Did you catch the phrase? A new command command. See, here's where John is picking up the same language. In his letter, he is referencing back to his gospel. Yet I am writing you a new command. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. He's saying the integrity of our love is tested by those who are closest to us. Jesus is not washing the feet of a new crowd in a new town. This was his inner circle. These are the people that he was most familiar with. Uh, I, find it, uh, I find that most modern followers of Jesus, and I would include myself in this, are a whole lot better at missions of love than we are at lives of love. Uh, I am quite loving when I can show up with that as my aim and that as my motive. I mean, I can be an open faucet of compassion for an hour at the soup kitchen or, or at a pastoral meeting or, or on a week-long mission trip or on Monday nights with my community, but do I show up to my ordinary life that way? See, most Christians are much, more, are much better at sprints of love than we are at running the long race. I am so regularly humbled by the way that I can spend all day emotionally present and available to people. I can listen well, I can offer love, I can share my life, and then I am distracted and agitated and temperamental with my family over dinner. 
It is my observation that those closest to us often get the worst of us. Would you agree? Is that your experience? So what do we do about it? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. See, Jesus is saying that table, the one that you find yourself at most frequently, your family dinner table or that fold-out Ikea thing that's in the corner that you share with your roommates or the break room with your coworkers or the table that you gather around on Tuesday nights with your Bridgetown community, make it your habit to get up from that table, strip off your outer garment, pick up a towel and a water basin and wash those people's feet. And look, just to clear up any misconception, that is a metaphorical act. <laughs> so you can get down just like that if you want to. But what Jesus is saying is make it your habit to take the place of the servant. Routinely make much of the other. Honor one another. Serve one another. Listen to one another. Make it your great ambition to love and serve your brothers and sisters. And as you do, the love of God will be poured into your heart and the false self will get squeezed out. See, we tend to get used to the Yadah experience of, of God's presence, God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit in certain environments, Right? God's love is poured into my heart in, in, in musical worship with the gathered church or in morning, my morning reading and prayer routine or in responding right here at the front or in the prayer room. But there comes a point in our discipleship to Jesus when the primary way we know God's love more deeply is to share that love more scandalously. Henry Nouwen, what is required is to become the beloved in the commonplaces of my daily existence and bit by bit to close the gap that exists between what I know myself to be and the countless specific realities of everyday life. Becoming the beloved is pulling a truth revealed to me from above down into the ordinariness of what I am, in fact, thinking about and doing from hour to hour. There comes a time in our discipleship to Jesus, uh, when the love of God is most profoundly known in the common environments, not the venerable ones, when, when the love of God is most profoundly received by giving it away and giving it away to the people whose imperfections we've grown most familiar with through close proximity. I've set an example that you should go and do as I have done for you. And then Jesus went on to repeat himself that very night, love each other as I've loved you. And that's a love that includes personal suffering. It's a love that includes forgiving 70 times 7. It's a love that keeps no score, no record of wrongs. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, when you love each other like this, that is the single criteria for the world recognizing you as being near to me. It's not your morality or your church attendance or your spiritual disciplines that identifies you, though all of those certainly are shaping agents within us. It's your love. It's the way that you love one another in all the ordinary ways. Why on earth did the early church experience so much power? Why did they seem to have such free access to supernatural healing and deliverance and prophecy and miracles? Because they gave so much love. The early church never imitated the miracles of Jesus without equally imitating the love of Jesus. The two are bound together. They move toward the mess in one another. They learned to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. They saw the worst in each other and they kept showing up. They were disappointed by one another but grew a high tolerance for that sort of thing through compassion. In the kingdom of God, power always serves love. Never the other way around. 
So what if you just began to block off an evening, weekly or bi-weekly or, or maybe just a monthly dinner, and as a spiritual discipline, you ask really good, thoughtful questions to your guest, and then you just listen. Because good questions and unhurried presence, they create the conditions for God to move. And as you're listening, you, you just prayed simple prayers like, Jesus, how are you inviting me to love like you love? And then you speak a word of encouragement, or you empathize with something that's been difficult, or you laugh until you cry, or you celebrate someone else's blessing. Kirsten is so good at this. She asks the best dinner questions. And I have again and again sat at dinner tables with her that became places of encounter for someone else. Or what if you, as a committed spiritual practice, you just started bringing a word of encouragement? So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says that when we gather together, we should bring, uh, or I'm sorry, in Colossians, he says you should bring a word of prophecy or praise or encouragement or teaching. So what if you just decided that when you were making your way to gather with this church community, whether that was on a Sunday or it was midweek in your community, that you prayed on the way there, God, what might you want to say to someone else in the community through me? And you just waited and listened. And then whatever came to mind, it, there's some encouragement that you are prone to overlook, some good thought, you're, you're prone to think about someone else but never say it out loud. You show up and you look that person in, you, in the eye and you say it to their face. How powerful would that be? How much less would my words matter if the most profound words were the ones being spoken from within the body? What if the greatest ministry doesn't happen from here to here, but it happens all up in here, right? Do you want to know life as your true self? Do you want to grow into it, inhabit that created self more fully and freely than love your siblings? That's not all. There's this other group of people, strangers, Hebrews chapter 13, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, hospitality is a home word. That's a hosting word. When we hear hospitality, the image that usually comes to mind is that welcoming others and hosting them in our home. Uh, but Jesus was the biblical picture of hospitality, and the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus was hospitable without a home. That's because Jesus occupied the spaces of strangers like he was at home. He was at home in himself. He was at home in the Father's world, and he was at home among all of the Father's children. But then what about this angel's bit? Right? I mean, are we meant to take that allegorically, or is that a real thing? Well, a picture, actually three pictures might be helpful here. In Luke 15, Jesus tells this series of parables aimed at love for the stranger or love for the outsider or the lost or the non-believer, whatever language you feel most comfortable with. Those stories are the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, or as it's often called, the prodigal son. There's three distinct stories, but they're all told from the same, uh, making the same point. Jesus is preoccupied with the one who is missing. His heart is disproportionately with the lost, and he will not rest until the wandering one is found by his pursuing love and brought back home. These stories, though, they were sparked by insiders who had a lack of love for the stranger. This is the inciting context that, that gave birth to these three stories. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the English muttered is the Greek diegon guzon. Can you say that? 
Me neither, right? Can't do that one. Just really can't. It's just a mouthful of consonants. But in the whole of the New Testament, only Luke uses this word. And he uses it more than once. It's the same word that he uses to describe the crowd's response when Jesus seeks out Zacchaeus as the one that he will go to sit at table with. Now that should get our attention, that when Jesus displays pursuing love for the stranger, the people mutter. Is there something to that? Uh, Well, of all the four gospel writers, Luke has the most extensive vocabulary, which shouldn't be that shocking. I mean, most of them are fishermen, and this dude's a doctor, so it kind of makes sense. But Luke's also the Bible's only Gentile author, uh, meaning that the scripture that he grew up reading would have most likely been the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of what we call the Hebrew Old Testament, not the original Hebrew. And here's where this gets really interesting. In the Septuagint, this same unpronounceable Greek word for mutter is used two times in Exodus 15 and 16. So the people grumbled or muttered against Moses saying, what are we to drink? In the desert, the whole community grumbled or again muttered against Moses and Aaron. So it's in the wilderness that Israel begins to long for familiarity and they mutter. They long for familiarity, even if that familiarity is returning to slavery, at least it was familiar, because there's a certain kind of comfort in knowing what to expect, right? In having a good enough and clear enough hold on this environment that that I have some set of expectation built in. Now hang on to that, because if we take that context to Luke 15, Jesus tells these three parables while he's walking through Samaria. That's the place of the Samaritans, the outsiders, the lost, the strangers, And it's in that place that the priests begin to mutter, that they begin to long for the familiar confines of the temple, where they knew their community, where where they were surrounded by friends, where we all play by, generally speaking, the same rules and, and live from the same script, where love is safer and it's more predictable, where it's easier to be my true self because I'm assuming that that's what you want from me. But out here... And it seems like Luke is intentionally drawing the reader's attention back to Exodus muttering. If you want the promised land, if you want to know true rest, you've got to pass through the unpredictability of the wilderness. Or to phrase it a bit differently for our purposes this morning, if you want to live as your true self, you must learn to love and love freely and completely, not only within the safe confines of the family, but among the strangers, beyond the walls of the church and into the city. Compassion that stops at siblings is not com- compassion that's matured within us. Mature compassion demands that we move beyond the church family, past the holy huddle, outside the walls of our comfort zones, in love for the stranger until the stranger becomes the family. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate, says Luke, and his love doesn't stay at home. It's a pursuing compassion. It's a fearless compassion. It's a compassion without walls. Last fall, I got to... Uh, take a trip to England with a few staff members from uh, within this church, and we were there to minister among the broader 24-7 prayer family and at KXC, who's one of our sister churches across the pond. And at the end of this long day of teaching and meetings, I was hungry and I was tired. So we sat down at some like hip small plates restaurant in Margate, England. And we sit down and the server comes to us And he starts talking to us, and he's American. 
And that was pretty surprising. We're not in London. I mean, we're in Margate. We're, we're in some like blue collar town by the sea. And he's not just American. He moved there from Portland. And so we get, I was like, oh, Portland, America, no thanks, but Portland, that's the vibe I just, so, that landed much better than I imagined. I'll use that repeatedly throughout the day, thank you for the feedback. So, so we're sitting there having this dinner, and then each time this guy brings us another little plate to share, we're talking a little bit more, learning a bit more of his story, and then eventually we pay the bill, and we start to walk out. And, and just as we're heading out, Brett is right behind me, and he says, hey, man, give me just a second. Let me catch up with you guys outside. And so then I'm standing outside with Bethany and Gerald, and I'm peering back through these restaurant windows at Brett, and I see Brett walk into the middle of this restaurant and find our server and stop him right in the middle of this restaurant in the hustle and bustle of the dinner rush, right in the middle of this guy's shift, he, he's at work, right in the middle of people, co-workers know him well, cruising past him in every direction. And Brett says something to him and then lays his hand on his shoulder and they both bow their head right there in the midst of the hustle and bustle. And this guy begins to weep, the server that was taking care of us, as Brett prays over him because Brett had a word of prophecy that he felt like the spirit was whispering to him as we were sitting there at dinner and he just couldn't leave without bringing that here. Now prophecy's safe right here, right? But what about when it gets beyond the walls? Outside of the confines of the comfort zone into Samaria where the people mutter? into the land of the stranger. See, that's love that has matured within us, that drives us beyond that place because our Father's compassion does not stay at home. See, th this is a love that transforms within the safety of the family, but it's also a love that transforms within the wilderness of Samaria. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. That means at least this, that there's a supernatural quality to common love. And it's why in Matthew 25, Jesus took this even a step further. And he said, when you show hospitality to, to a stranger, it might not just be an angel that you're entertaining. That's me that you're loving. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The most direct way that we minister to Jesus according to Jesus is through active compassion to the stranger. But the human instinct to conform to the, is always to conform to the environments that we inhabit with strangers, right? It's to pick up social cues and then adapt myself to those social cues. The biblical invitation is to live among strangers just like we're at home. It's to become so secure in our identity in Jesus that we are as at home in the company of the stranger as we are in the company of our siblings. Why? Because Jesus is preoccupied with the one who's missing. He is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one lost. He is the woman who stops everything until she's found her lost coin and then throws a party worth more than the coin that she lost in the first place. He is the father who paces by the window looking for his son's silhouette on the skyline somewhere out there. Stephen Covey, who authored The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, tells uh, the story of an incident that happened with him on the New York City subway on a Sunday morning. And uh, in New York City, Sunday morning is the time when the subway is quiet. It's the one time that the city that never sleeps seems like it might be sleeping. And 
It's the one time that anyone who wants to can get a seat on the subway. So he's sitting there on the subway and he happens to be reading this novel that he's really lost in. And then at this one particular stop, a, a father and several children get on the train. And, and as they get on, they take the quiet Sunday morning subway car and they turn the whole thing upside down because a couple of these kids start running up and down the subway car back and forth chasing each other. Two of them start wrestling on the floor of the subway car. Ooh, right? You don't know the things I've seen on the floor of the subway car. And, and all this is going on, and all the other passengers clearly get tense. There's this one elderly man who gets up and moves to the other end of the train because he seems disturbed or, or fearful that he might get run into. But the dad just isn't noticing or doing anything about it. And so Covey keeps looking at him, thinking, when is this guy going to step up and do something? But nothing is happening. So eventually he says, sir... Perhaps you could restore some order by telling your children to come back and sit down. And when he does that, the father like snaps out of a daze that he was in and says, I'm so sorry. I know I should do something, but we've just come from the hospital. Their mother died an hour ago, and I don't know what to do. And in that very moment, suddenly, Stephen Covey's judgment and frustration and agitation with a stranger was converted into compassion. See, there's this old Quaker phrase, an enemy is one whose story we have not heard. Have you ever noticed how much harder it is to dislike someone when you've looked them in the eye, asked good questions, and listened? When we make the choice to know the other, that's when love creeps in on judgment. See, Peter Winter, writing an article for the New York Times titled The Forgotten Radicalism of Jesus Christ, said, The lesson from which Jesus' life and the lesson from Jesus' life and ministry is that understanding people's stories and struggles requires much more time and effort than condemning them, but it is vastly more rewarding. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, only love gets close enough to know. And one of the great challenges of discipleship is to keep that up front in our consciousness so that I can live today. The common events, the agenda, the busyness, the frustrations of today in response to it. So I can live today by a love that gets close enough to know. So what if you gave an hour a week or a month, just an hour a month, to serve at one of our Justice and Mercy partners? Like if you joined the Refugee Care Collective team or you began to serve foster kids at Foster Parents Not Off or at With Love or you began to mentor a teen at Hollaback Mentors, you began to serve dinner at City Team on a weeknight or at BPM Under the Bridge on a Thursday night at Night Strike or uh, what if life is about relationship? What if at the end of the day love is the only thing that lasts forever and what if your story in Portland is not summarized in your resume or through a series of adventures or nights out or through your Instagram feed but it's in the names and faces of those that you've sacrificially loved. That's where the story of your life is being written in this city. Or what if you invited a stranger, I mean especially that neighbor that annoys you over for dinner? What if you learned their name? Someone that just landed with, I think we all know what one of the responses is going to be. <laughs> I'm at that number I talked about. I've got to land this plane, okay? Uh, what if you listen to their story? What if you let a distant impression get upended by getting close enough to know? What if you got close enough for judgment to be replaced by compassion? 
See, after building his case for four chapters, John finally comes right out and reveals this ministry. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. See, in a stunning reversal, the place this whole thing lands is here, that maturity and love are tied together. In 12-step recovery groups, personal recovery is inseparably tied to service toward the other. Bill W. and Dr. Bob, the the co-authors of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the founders of the 12 steps, they made this discovery that when my temptation is greatest to run back to the bottle, the thing that upends that is when I selflessly love and serve someone else. Somehow that that fills me with this otherworldly strength. The key to my own recovery, the key to my own freedom, the way to save my own life is to give it away. Jesus said something like that, didn't he? See, Jesus also said this, I was a stranger and you invited me in. And when we remember that that's our story, we can live that story toward others. When we remember that, that I was wandering, I was lost, I was hopeless, but love came and found me and invited me in, we can become that to the world around us. And as a pastor, I get asked all the time, how do I overcome this pornography habit or, or my overconsumption? What do I do about my promiscuity or these cycles of thought that, that just seem to repeat themselves in my head? How do I overcome the cycle that I'm stuck in that I don't want to be stuck in? Here's the response you never thought you'd get from the letter of First John. If you have an area of habitual sin that you can't overcome, turn your attention to tangibly, sacrificially loving and serving others. Because patterns of sin feast when we spiral into the false self, but they starve when we joyfully give our lives away to the world around us. Loving one another is the pathway to both freedom and maturity. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Common love is the supernatural power that frees the true self. 